Obama again vows to shut Guantanamo today, Tuesday, April 30th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The president calls the Guantanamo prison unsustainable. Guantanamo is not necessary to keep America safe. It is expensive. It is inefficient. We'll hear why shutting it down remains a challenge. Also today, how to prevent the next factory disaster in Bangladesh. This former garment worker says a boycott is not the answer. The boycott would be the suicide for the country because, you know, 80% of exports come from this. Plus, how an English model living in New York in the 1950s got involved in an attempted coup in Panama. No thriller writer ever thought of anything so fantastic, yet the Panamanian authorities swear it's true. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama once said he'd close the military prison in Guantanamo, Cuba. Then it looked like it would stay open indefinitely. Today at a White House press conference, it sounded like Obama wants to revisit the status of Guantanamo again. Um, I'm going to go back at this. Uh, I've asked my team to review everything that's currently being done in Guantanamo, everything that we can do administratively, and I'm going to re-engage with Congress uh, to try to make the case that this is not uh, something that's in the best interest of the American people. Um, And it's not sustainable. The world's Arun Roth has been covering events at the military prison for years. Arun, this sounds huge. I mean, let's put the comments, though, from the president in context. What was the question that he was replying to? Well, he was asked about the hunger strike going on in Guantanamo right now, which we've talked about on the program, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, Out of 166 detainees, 100 are now on hunger strike, more than half of them. 21 of them are having to be force-fed uh, nutritional supplements, having a tube put up their nose, down into their stomach, being force-fed to keep them alive. Just today, we found out that they're sending 40 more medics down to Guantanamo Bay. It's basically they're going to have one-to-one ratio of, of, of medical personnel to prisoners. And the AMA today said that they object to this regime of force-feeding. They consider that to be a violation of rights. So... What do you reckon is the heat and criticism that the president's been getting on the hunger strike? Well, the heat that he's getting really is coming from the outside. It's not really coming politically. I mean, it's not like there, there is a lot of agitation on Capitol Hill to, uh, to close Guantanamo. These are reports that are coming from the outside, and, and uh, the hunger strike has just gotten too big to be ignored by this point. So truth squad this for us, Arun. Is it accurate to say uh, Obama really wanted to close Guantanamo but was stymied by lawmakers on Capitol Hill? That's the president's line, and that's that's mostly true. Uh, there was a, a line put in the National Defense Authorization Act last year which restricted the president's ability to transfer detainees. There's arguments about whether or not there would be able to be waivers under those contexts if he could transfer them under different set of circumstances. Also, the fact that he could have vetoed those bills, but he didn't. But his hands are basically tied now when it comes to transferring detainees out of Guantanamo. So what kind of political battle uh, will President Obama be facing on Capitol Hill if he wants to try and deal with this place, even shut it down? Initially, uh, you know, four years ago when he talked about closing Guantanamo when he first came into office, there were two senators on, in the GOP that were talked about being potential partners for him and who wanted to close it potentially. That was Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator John McCain. We've seen, Marco, over the last four years, those two senators have turned into two of President Obama's most bitter critics on foreign policy. So honestly, it's hard to imagine a path forward here, who he's going to work with 
uh, on the other side of the aisle in, to, to get the to get the prison camp closed. I'm, I, I got to say, this press conference today, it's the most we've heard about Guantanamo from uh, President Obama in years. What is your big takeaway from this? And do you see this as a win for the detainees hunger strike? That is my big takeaway. I mean, the remarkable thing is that it seems like the hunger strike won. Nothing else. Nobody was putting this back on the political map as far as it goes. Again, nobody was talking about it during the election. Nobody's been talking about it in in Congress. It's been the fact that this hunger strike has gotten so big, so nasty, they had to put down an uprising, basically, that, yeah, you would say, basically, it looks like the hunger strike worked. They're back on the map and it's being discussed again. So as for the hunger strikers themselves, how much longer will they be striking, especially with these uh, medics down there? It's an interesting question because I'm very curious to see how news of this filters down to them. We know that they've heard word about the the fact that the the base was not going to be closed from their lawyers. Word is going to filter down again when they have conversations with their lawyers. They're going to hear about the comments the president made. And it's going to be interesting to see what sort of effect this has on the behavior down there. All right. The world's Arun Roth. Thanks so much. Thanks, Marco. In Bangladesh, the anger and pain have not subsided. Almost a week after a building collapse left almost 400 garment workers dead and many more still missing. Today, the owner of that building appeared before a court in Dhaka, the capital, while thousands of demonstrators demanded the death penalty for him. And it's not just the building owner who's under pressure over inadequate safety standards. So are the many Western retail giants that had some of their clothes made by one of the five factories inside the collapsed structure. Two of those Western companies have offered to compensate some of the victims' families. One of the retailers, British clothing store Primark, said its offer includes long-term aid for children who lost parents. Companies like Primark do business in places like Bangladesh because they're looking to lower the cost for their products, and consumers benefit by paying less for clothes. But is price the only thing that Western consumers worry about? Apparently not, as the world's Leo Hornack found out when he spoke to shoppers outside a Primark store in London. I kind of see it as quite like a cheap, not very nice store, but I went in there just to pick up some stuff for someone else. Um, So yeah, I do occasionally come, but I know of the bad reputation. Definitely, I think Primark has a, a, a bad stigma for the way it treats its employees in a very kind of backwards, very uncivilized kind of way these days. So the immediate reaction is is obviously very negative. But you're coming out of a Primark store. I am coming out of Primark, exactly. Um, the thing is, when when clothes are so cheap, I, I mean, I hate it. I hate the fact that I do this. I really do. But I can't help but be seduced by the price, uh, you know, especially when you're living in you know a very expensive city and not necessarily earning that much. Two shoppers speaking just outside a Primark store in London. We asked the leader of one of Bangladesh's most prominent labor rights advocacy groups for her reaction to Primark's offer of compensation. Here's what she said. Just don't wash your hand by giving this money. Be also responsible and sign the fire and building safety agreement if you really wanted to end this death trap. That's Kalpona Akhtar, executive director of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity. She herself was a garment worker as a child. Akhtar notes that since 2005, more than 900 workers have died in industrial accidents in Bangladesh, and that was before last week's building collapse. Now, Akhtar and other activists are demanding that all interested parties do more to ensure the safety of those who work in the Bangladeshi apparel industry. From the factory owner side, government or retailer side, nobody has done enough to prevent these deaths. So it can be prevented by signing fire and building safety agreement that has been created after a factory fire where gap 
was sourcing from in 2010. And our organization and dozens of Bangladeshi unions are also supporting this demand that the buyer should pay where they are sourcing from to do the necessary intervention and repair for the electric wear and whatever it is needed. And in the same time, the workers should be in the board to give their voice in the improving process of their safety nets in the factories. And moreover, the workers should get their union voice that we have law and rights, but the workers are not free to from union and organize themselves. So if workers who would have union in their factories, they can negotiate with their factory management. Tell me, what can consumers in the West do? I mean, everybody's always kind of ready to boycott. Does boycotting Bangladesh-made garments make sense to you? No, the boycott is not the solution. The boycott would be the suicide for the country because the country economy, 80% of exports come from this apparel exporting. And when I mentioned that this is the biggest workforce we have in this industry, where 4 million workers working. So whenever the consumers see the news that the workers died in here, I know this is make them feel bad. But in the same time, I would say, please don't stop buying. Because not buying is not the solution. Buy it, but in the same time, think about this human face who make clothes for you and dying in this factory because of the negligence of these Western retailers because they are not doing enough. Kalpona Akhtar, Executive Director of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. The business equation behind the modern apparel trade is wider than just factories in Bangladesh and retailers in the U.S. or Europe. There are middlemen involved. Robert Ross has studied the garment industry. He is the author of Slaves to Fashion, Poverty and Abuse in the New Sweatshop. So what I'd really like to know, Robert, is just how all of this works. Say I'm an American retailer. I want some clothes made at low cost by those Bangladeshi workers in factories. How would I go about setting that up? Who do I talk to? Among the uh, primary ways this happens is that you reach out to a buying office or agent, the biggest in the world, Lian Fung, for example, is headquartered in Hong Kong. You would have in hand a uh, design and a quantity. And you would say, find me a factory that can make this at this level of quality with a certain delivery date of X. And your agent would then find you a factory. Right. And how many factories is that one agent that you just cited working with in how many countries? Hundreds. Uh, They have 28,000 employees who do nothing but this, finding and managing contracts. Now, there seems to be a perception that many Western retailers are insulated from the manufacturing culture and business in Bangladesh, for example, almost indemnifying the companies from any local disasters that might occur. Is that accurate? No, it's not accurate. When they say that they don't know what's going on in the factory, what we as readers, consumers, and listeners have to understand is they know darn well what's going on with the sizing, with the stitching, with the buttonholes. Mm. They're playing very close attention to that. The fact of the matter is they are not insulated from the factory cultures of the places they operated in. The people who work in Bangladesh have been doing so for years, the big ones, and they've been through fire and building collapse and fire upon fire. There's nothing new about this to them. I must say that the size of this catastrophe is forcing a level of attention which has uh, not been usual, and perhaps we're at a turnaround moment. I, I certainly hope that's true. How would you say the Bangladeshi government is implicated in what happened? 
It is highly implicated as responsible and accountable as the Western retailers and brands are and should be. The fact of the matter is that this takes place in a country whose government has allowed these abuses to take place with impunity. This building, for example, and its terrible collapse has three more floors to it than its permit allowed. And that was exactly the situation last fall in a fire that killed 112 people. The fire broke out on a floor that was beyond the permit. These kinds of things happen all the time. Apparently, there are lawmakers in Bangladesh's parliament that are, are deeply invested in yes, the manufacturing I, I business. I believe the number is 33. Around 10 percent of the parliamentarians in Bangladesh are factory owners. The Bangladeshi Garment Manufacturers and Exporters Association is by far the most influential single group besides the military in Bangladeshi policy making. But surely when a disaster like this occurs with so many deaths, lawmakers have got their voters to answer to as well, don't they? That may be the reason that we've seen something in these last three days that are without precedent. Uh, there have been eight arrests in Bangladesh because of this collapse. Uh, and that has never happened before, despite a 20-year history of disastrous fires. We may be at, uh, for Bangladeshi history and this particular industry in that place, we may be at a turning point. Robert Ross, author of Slaves to Fashion, Poverty and Abuse in the New Sweatshop. Thank you very much for your thoughts on this. And thanks for your time. You can find more of our coverage of the building collapse in Bangladesh and of the garment industry there. That's at theworld.org. And while you're there, join the garment industry and supply chain conversation by adding your thoughts to our coverage today. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PRI the world or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates from the show throughout the day. We tweet at PRI the world. Again, you can find all of those links at theworld.org. Still to come on the world, a ballerina, a model, and a bunch of military shirts and armbands. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The daughter of a powerful Mexican official shows up at a trendy Mexico City restaurant and demands a specific table. When she doesn't get it, she sets out to have the place shut down by daddy's inspectors. Oh, I almost forgot. Daddy happens to be the head of Mexico's Consumer Protection Agency. Unfortunately for both father and daughter, the whole plot is exposed on social media right then and there by other patrons wielding smartphones. And there you have it. A scandal is served. Mexican-American patron Max St. Romain was there. You know the restaurant owners, Max. How do they tell the story about uh, this evening recently when Andrea Benitez couldn't get the table she wanted? When I walked by there, the event was unfolding, the actual part when the agents came by. What I was told by Gabriela, the owner of the place, was that earlier that afternoon during lunchtime, which is their peak time, this young lady turned out to the restaurant. And when she was unable to get a table, she threw a tantrum. Then she started throwing around the fact that she was the daughter of a, of a powerful person. So when, when she threatened to actually send inspectors, that's when things started getting a little serious and a little dark. These inspectors showed up. Did they find anything amiss in the restaurant? The only thing that they were able to come up with was <laughs> that the menu stated that they serve mezcal. 
claiming that a true mezcal has to be made of a specific type of agave and what they were serving did not correspond to that type of agave. Therefore, it was not mezcal. Therefore, it was falsely stated in their menu. But then something really extraordinary happened. Explain that. So people started, you know, whipping out their smartphones, taking photographs and videotaping what was happening, deliberately trying to put these public officials, you know, make them nervous. Things got a little bit even more uncomfortable when one of the inspectors bumped into one of the customers that was eating there. This was videotaped. That caused some tension amongst everybody involved. So the inspectors got frightened and they ran off into uh, one of the vans that, that was parked outside to seek some sort of a shelter. And they stayed in there until lawyers from the agency came by. And that's when the, the restaurant actually was shut down. So do you see the narrative here as restaurant patrons head to social media to take down a, an elite young woman and her attempts to get a good table? This story comes with a, a long-standing baggage of corruption that, that we've carried through here in Mexico for decades and decades associated to the PRI, the party that was in power for more than 70 years up until about 15 years ago. When the party came back in this present administration that just came into power at the start of the year, Mexico still has a lot of sort of skepticism over, is this the old party or is this a new, renewed, fresh clean, transparent party. What's happening now is that we are seeing echoes of the same sort of abuse of power that were happening, you know, when the party was last in power, when the children of all the powerful officials could just strut around their power. It sounds like it's a kind of a sign that uh, the arrogance of the very wealthy and powerful in Mexico is just less acceptable than it once was, even under a, a pre-president. When the pre was last in power, we didn't have social media. And it's so interesting that this story that is really a very small sort of little incident has snowballed into this international event that is now being spoken to in our Senate. It's now on the desk of the president, and it's all related to this one specific little thing at a table at a Trinity restaurant. Filmmaker Max St. Romain is heading back to Maximo Bistro. Thanks to social media, the Mexico City restaurant is open again. Now, remember when Jack Lew was named U.S. Treasury Secretary early this year? Well, there was a lot of talk about his signature, if you can call it that. It looks more like an unfurled slinky. People called it manufactured, silly even. Who cares, right? Well, we all do because sometime soon that signature is going to appear on U.S. currency. And when it does, will the value of the dollar be affected by the value we may ascribe to the handwriting of the Treasury Secretary? Does handwriting have value? Our language editor Patrick Cox reports. Wendy Cope is a poet. She crafts profound things out of words, exactly the kind of person you'd expect to find pleasure in putting pen to paper. I don't actually like having to handwrite anything that's for public consumption because I'm not very proud of my handwriting. This is how bad it gets. When Cope wants to write a postcard, she'll buy two because she knows she'll mess up the first one. Charities sometimes ask me to handwrite a poem for them to put in an auction. Um, it raises a surprising amount of money, so I don't like to say no, but I hate doing it because I have to do it so slowly and then I go wrong and then I have to start again and... Um, yeah. Yeah. And she's not alone. There are many, many people who feel ashamed of their penmanship. There are lots of things that, that are very personal to you that you don't feel ashamed about at all. People don't say they're ashamed of the, the clothes they wear, for instance. 
But handwriting is different. This is Philip Henscher, by the way. He's written a book called The Missing Ink, The Lost Art of Handwriting. Yes, it, it does feel very personal. It feels like a, a revelation of self. And so people do feel if there was some way to avoid it, then that might be a good thing. And so a lot of people just don't write anything by hand. One recent survey found that as many as 40% of those asked hadn't written a single thing by hand in the previous six months. You don't have to anymore, except perhaps sign a document or a dollar bill or something. But if you're one of those people, don't move to France. Handwriting skills and handwriting experts, graphologists, are well-respected there. And according to the graphology industry, more than 50% of French companies make some use of handwriting analysis. Here's veteran graphologist Catherine Bautiot. Studying the trace of someone's writing is to study the energy which guides the hand and the message which, consciously and unconsciously, the person wishes to transmit. Bautiot says corporate clients tend to bring her in when they're deciding between job candidates. University of Grenoble psychologist Laurent Begg says those corporations really should get over it. This practice is totally rubbish. If you didn't catch that, he said... This practice is totally rubbish. One more time. This practice is totally rubbish. You cannot use it uh, for professional purpose. That's true up to a point, says Philip Henscher, the author of the book about handwriting. Henscher agrees there's a lot of simplistic analysis, especially of evil people like Hitler. Hitler is a, a great favorite of graphologists over the decades, some of whom make startlingly stupid observations about him. My favourite one was the one who said that there was a great significance in the fact his writing leaned so far to the right. But Henscher sticks to the belief that handwriting is personal, which means two things. We can learn something about the person from the writing, and because of that, Henscher says, handwriting is the best medium for intimate communication. A couple of weeks ago, I, was, I picked up an old copy of Vanity Fair that I'd had for decades, and out of it fell a little handwritten note that my sister had left for me when I was in hospital. It was just a completely unremarkable note saying, I saw that you fell asleep and I'm just, I'll, I'll be back later today. Love, Kate. And that was it, really. Now, that was from 32 years ago. It was absolutely full of her personality. I saw it and I knew immediately who'd left it for me. If she'd sent me a text message, would I still have it after 32 years? Would I still have that connection to my past, to her past, to our relationship? I wonder. Time, perhaps, to download that handwriting app. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. This is The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, how an English fashion model got mixed up with one family's plan to overthrow the government of Panama. I said, oh, don't worry, Judy. My family are famous for revolutions. It's our sort of career, really. We go from one president to another, overthrowing people. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Womenheart, and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service 
PRI and WGBH in Boston. In China, leaders are taking a gamble. They're trying to get more and more Chinese to move to cities as a way to boost the country's slowing economic growth. Chinese migrants also see urban living as their economic ticket. But there's a problem. Many of those who've gone to the city can't access the same social services as other urban dwellers. And that's because of a resident permit system called Huko. The Communist Party has long used it to restrict movement, though it's considering reform. It's another policy that's past due for change. The world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magstad, has a second part in our series, China Past Due. The musician plucking the strings of this ancient Chinese instrument is a 16-year-old migrant girl from Sichuan. Young Li Ping came to join her parents in this scruffy migrant neighborhood on the edge of Shanghai just after the Sichuan earthquake of 2008. She learned to play the guzhong here at a community center for migrant kids. She says Shanghai's better than her hometown. It's more developed, and there's more scope for self-improvement. Yang would like to stay in Shanghai. She'd like to keep playing the guzhong and go to senior high school here, where the teachers are good, so she's likely to do better on the all-important college entrance exam. But none of this is an option for Yang or for millions of other migrant kids like her. Yang says she has to go back to her hometown in Sichuan next year. That's because of China's household registration system, or HUKO. Migrant kids have to take the college entrance exam where they have their HUKO, even if they've lived in another place since they were babies. All kinds of social services are linked to the HUKO. For much of the past half-century, the HUKO system enforced a kind of economic apartheid, keeping farmers on the farm, while the relatively small number of workers in the cities, tasked with helping China industrialize, could get the free education, health care, pensions, subsidized food, and other benefits. The farmers didn't. Then it all started to change, says Wu Zhang, a former Shanghai vice director for urban planning. In the past 20 years, the hukou system in China become more and more flexible. For instance, 20 years ago, you cannot move. But now, you know, we, we can accept all the people if you can find a job here, if you can find a place to live. So now, Shanghai has about 10 or 11 million migrant workers without urban hukos. The problem is how to let this part of the population share the public service as much as the local people who has a hukou. It's a problem all over China. Local governments welcome cheap migrant labor to build roads and bridges and luxury housing, but then the same governments complain that they can't afford to provide social services to all these migrants. China's new leaders say, in the long run, they can't afford not to. China wants to boost domestic consumption as an engine of economic growth, but migrants won't spend much on consumer goods if they're not covered on social services. Premier Li Keqiang spoke at a news conference at the end of the National People's Congress in March. Urbanization will unleash enormous consumption and investment demand and create many job opportunities. More directly, it will help to enrich farmers and benefit the whole nation. Former farmer Dong He Long is waiting to be enriched. He and his wife Chen Ying are sifting through debris from a clothing factory for recycling. Cardboard here, plastic there, cloth in another pile. They make about $400 a month. 
a whole lot more than they made on their soybean and potato farm in Anhui. But they're under no illusion that they're living the Shanghai dream. Yes, I wish there's a change. I want to have a Shanghai hukou so that we can be treated as the same as the Shanghainese. And if we have to go back to our hometown, we won't get used to the life there anymore because we have been in Shanghai for 15 years. The couple's six-year-old daughter goes to this school for migrant kids. Dong says the teachers there aren't as good as in regular Chinese schools. Their two older kids had to go back to their village in Anhui to finish high school. The parents hope the hukou system will change by the time their youngest is in high school so she can stay here. They live on the fringes of Shanghai in a shabby migrant shanty town. Some 260 million migrants live like this in China's cities, in the city, but not really of it. Former city planner Wu Zhang says if China really wants to encourage more people to move to the cities and spend more money there, it's high time to rethink the hukou system, or better yet, get rid of it. Not so fast, says a Shanghai native named Qian. He's a 30-year-old father of three, the second and third were twins, and he's been protesting online against proposed legislation that would allow migrant kids to stay in Shanghai and take their college entrance exams here. He says it would make life harder for his kids. In fact, it's already harder, he says. His daughter's kindergarten class is supposed to have no more than 25 kids, but they have 35 because migrant kids here are now eligible for public school education through ninth grade. Public transportation is crowded with migrants too, and hospitals. And why should his kids have to compete with newcomers down the line when his parents and grandparents helped build Shanghai into what it is today? Qian says reforms are needed, sure, but it's impossible for everyone to get benefits immediately, right? Maybe these migrants' interests are hurt, but there will be more people enjoying the benefits in the future. That's how it goes. That's how it used to go, but the equation has changed, says Tom Miller, author of the book China's Urban Billion. For the last 20 years or so, this has made economic sense. Basically, it made sense for China to urbanize on the cheap. You could treat migrant workers as economic cannon fodder. That's beginning to change now, partly because of rising labor costs. And I think socially, this is potentially a time bomb. I think if if these people who want to become full-time permanent urban citizens suddenly realize that the rules of the game are permanently stacked against them, China potentially has a big social problem and a big political problem on its hands. Shanghai has gotten that message. Besides the risks of instability, Shanghai's official residents are having less than one child per couple. So its base of consumers will start to shrink if at least some migrants aren't empowered to stay and spend. So Shanghai has started dividing migrant workers into classes. The ones who are the most educated or talented get the Shanghai hukou. The slightly less talented might get a hukou after seven years of paying into the social security system. And the ordinary schmoes who build the buildings and clean the apartments and sweep the streets, they'll have to wait longer. Of course, some farmers got lucky. They didn't have to come to the city and wait for a hukou. The city came to them. This thoroughly urban neighborhood was once the village where farmer Li Jinqi was born 68 years ago. He's written a series of memoirs about life in the village. As a village kid, he saw the Communist Party come to power. 
As a teenager, he became a barefoot doctor, then worked as an accountant for a collective farming unit. Then Mao Zedong died and economic reforms began. The city expanded and swallowed Li's village. He was given an urban hukou and an apartment in a building where his family's house used to be. Not a bad life, he says. Li says urban residents have it much better than farmers. We get pensions, we have all kinds of welfare, and we don't have to work so hard. His one concern is that crime in the area has gone up. New migrants moving in, he says. I ask if he thinks it's time to end the hukou system so other farmers who want to become urban residents can enjoy the social services he does now. Of course not, he says. The hukou system is necessary. Without it, the country couldn't control its population. Every country should give each person a hukou and control their movement, otherwise there'd be chaos. I tell him that most countries don't, in fact, control the movement of their citizens. He's surprised. I suggest that it's a relic of an era in China's communist rule that perhaps no longer fits modern times. He disagrees. He says, we Chinese used to live in a feudal society where the emperor himself decided everything. That was barely more than 100 years ago. In China, there is always regulation. In a family, the oldest one regulates. In a production team, the team leader regulates. In a village, the village chief regulates. We've been doing it this way for thousands of years. Everyone needs limits. But for a 16-year-old migrant girl with a flair for music and great expectations, there's no reason to be held back. She and millions more of her generation expect better. And China's new leaders know that China's future and the party's depend on delivering it. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Shanghai. You can find more on the China Past Due series at theworld.org. And tomorrow in part three of our series, we look at one of the fastest growing sources of social unrest in China, land grabs and property rights. For all the shifts and changes, China remains the product of its revolution. But the history of the world is also littered with failed revolutions and attempted coups. One such attempt took place in April of 1959 in Central America. The world's Alex Galifant is here. And Alex, this is a weird story, isn't it? This is weird and wonderful. First off, you need to know who Margot Fontaine was, Mm. a ballet dancer back in the 1950s. She was a star with Britain's royal ballet dance with Nureyev. And she had the world in her feet, you might say. Mm. And Fontaine was married to a man from Panama by the name of Roberto Arias, Tito for short. And they made their home in London and all was well. Margot and Tito. Right. Tito was the son of a former president of Panama and his family opposed the then president. And so in 1959, Tito had a bright idea. He would overthrow Panama's leader and take the job for himself. Fontaine would be the country's first lady, the the queen of Panama even. You know, romantic idea. Mm, I'm guessing it didn't quite work out like that. Uh, No. Back only two days after release from Panama City Jail, Dame Margot Fontaine came home. All wanted to know whether she and her husband, Dr. Roberto Arias, had been in any plot to overthrow the government of Panama. No thriller writer ever thought up anything so fantastic, yet the Panamanian authorities swear it's true. Anyhow, I thought the whole thing was hilarious. It was also amateur. 
Is that Margot Fontaine herself? No, that is a woman named Judy Tatham.、Mm. She was a friend of Margot Fontaine's. These days, she lives in quiet retirement in Italy. But she played a small role in this attempted coup in Panama, and she just spoke to the BBC program Witness about it. Okay, so how does Judy Tatham fit into the whole story? Well, she was a model living in New York, and one day in 1959, Margot and Tito they come to New York, and they meet up with Judy for a meal at the Plaza Hotel. And we had breakfast together, extraordinary meal the Americans have. And she said, "Judy, we wondered if you could get some shirts for us." Of course I can. How many do you want? Thinking two or three. And he said, "I should think about five hundred." Enough for a small army, in、mm. other words. Not that Judy Tatham pried too far. I kept my cool, and being English, didn't ask questions. And Marco, this is one of my favorite things about this story. Judy Tatham has this ultra-refined sense of manners and decorum, and it always supersedes whatever giant elephant is going on in the conversation. No revolution was mentioned, of course. I was too polite to ask. Of course, of course. But knowing Tito and his family, Tatham figured it out. Especially when they asked her to use her contacts in the fashion industry to procure five、um, hundred armbands. Five hundred armbands—that'll do it. And so eventually, Judy Tatham. Says to them, if there's a revolution about to happen, let me come along. So he said, "Oh, all right, and you can bring the armbands." And I thought, "How am I going to take five hundred armbands to the custom?" And I was walking through Macy's, and they were offering giant packets of sanitary towels. And I thought, "That's it." Took out all centres and stuffed all the armbands in. Yeah, most curious armbands ever, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's this unbelievable mixture of naivety in this story, which Tatham fully admits to. Plus, you know, glamour, arrogance, entitlement, romance, and deep unreason—like the thought that people might actually get killed—never seemed to cross anyone's mind in all of this. All right, so was anyone hurt? It doesn't seem so. Judy Tatham herself was only in Panama for a week before the attempt itself, and when it happened, it was a total flop. Margot and Tito arrived by luxury yacht and were given up by local fishermen, and promised support from various quarters never materialized. After a couple of days in jail, Margot was flown to New York by the British, and she stayed with Judy Tatham. And Judy asked Margot what had happened. Really. No, not really. Because <laughs> I have English manners, and I never ask awkward questions to people that are going to embarrass them.、Right, Alex, how did all of this end? Well, Tito did get out safely.、Uh, Margot Fontaine's career in ballet wasn't affected at all. And when Panama's government changed a few years later, all was forgiven. Margot and Tito retired there later, and eventually passed away at home in peace. Well, a good lesson to everybody: don't try this at home. Alex, thanks so much. And you can find BBC reporter Mike Lanchin's full conversation with Judy Tatham at theworld.org. The Netherlands has a new king, and that's a starting point for our geo quiz. The crowd cheered outside the royal palace in Amsterdam today after shedding a tear. Queen Beatrix signed the act of abdication, and Willem Alexander became the first Dutch king in more than a hundred years. The new king is in the spotlight, and so is his wife, the new Queen Maxima, says the Dutch editor of Royalty Magazine. The Dutch are rather stiff,、uh, sober, stubborn, and then there's this Latin American girl who comes to the Netherlands and you know overwhelms us with her temperament, her looks, her beauty, her extravagance in a way. So it's good to have her as a new queen. So the question for you is, where's Queen Maxima from? The answer is coming right up.
Hail Hoot, this is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. So the Netherlands crowned a new king today, but his wife, the new Queen Maxima, where's she from? Well, she was born in Argentina, the answer to our geo-quiz today. BBC Mundo's Ignacio de los Reyes is in Buenos Aires and has been gauging the reaction there. Ignacio, thousands turned out across the pond to see the new king and queen. What about in Buenos Aires today? Did anyone get up early to watch the royal ceremony like they do with a World Cup soccer match? No, not really. I mean, nothing to do with the soccer matches. Uh, This was quite quiet, actually. I came to the office around 6 a.m. local time. All the cafes I passed by were completely empty. I mean, nothing to do when you have thousands of people waking up so early to watch a football match. But the main newspapers, for instance, have Maxima on their front page today, some of them calling her the Argentine Queen or Argentina's first monarch. And also TV channels are running now pictures of the royal couple for those who didn't want to wake up early to watch the ceremony live. And also the Dutch community here, which is big, organized some events. And the city of Buenos Aires hosted a tango show yesterday in her honor. So, well, some of her supporters are talking about that in Argentina. They say this is like their own fairy tale. But, of course, not everybody agrees with that. So who does not agree with this fairy tale narrative? Well, there are activists and leftists that have been very critical of her figure and that say that the country has other priorities now rather than paying attention to a foreign royal event. For instance, yesterday I spoke with some activists that were victims of human rights abuses during the years of the Junta regime, one of the darkest episodes of the Argentine history when uh, thousands of people were tortured and killed by the authorities. And this makes sense because Maxima's father was part of the cabinet during these times. I mean, there isn't any proof that he was responsible or even aware of human rights abuses during that time, but he was banned from attending the ceremony by the Dutch authorities. I spoke with Tati Almeida, who is one of the leaders of this movement called Madres de Plaza de Mayo, or the Mothers of uh, Mayo Square, mothers who lost their children during the, the years of the regime. This is what she told me yesterday. Por lo menos que yo sepa... Nunca, nunca he hecho un comentario del horror que pasó en la Argentina, su país. So, Ignacio, what is she saying? Well, she says that she has never heard Maxima talking about the horrors of what happened in Argentina 40 years ago, that she hasn't apologized for all the pain that her people suffered during that time. Now that she has become a queen, she should do more to promote human rights, not only in Argentina, but also in the rest of the world. I I know she grew up in a pretty darn nice neighborhood in Buenos Aires and Hmm. went on to work in international finance in New York. Fill in the gaps for us. Yeah, she comes from a wealthy family in northern Buenos Aires, and she was raised Catholic and studied finances. Then she moved to the U.S. where she worked as an investment banker, and then she met the Dutch prince during a holiday in Spain. As far as I know, she soon became very popular in the Netherlands, but also here 
where celebrity magazines cover the princess trips abroad. I mean, Argentines are pretty well aware of what's going on with Maxima. So Argentina is the home of the new pope and now of the new queen of the Netherlands. When will Queen Maxima actually pay a visit to her native country? She comes here very often, not in official visits, but she comes here to visit her family because uh, her father wasn't allowed to attend her wedding either. And she said that that made her sad. So she comes here every now and then. And it, it's funny because not only Argentines have now a queen and a pope, they also say they have the best football player in the world, who is Messi. Uh, mm-hmm. So a lot of jokes going on around here uh, these days. Yeah, well, I guess that's kind of the trifecta, a queen, a pope, and uh, the greatest soccer player in the world. What else could they ask for? Really? BBC Mundo's Ignacio de los Reyes in Buenos Aires telling us about Queen Maxima of the Netherlands, a native Argentine. Ignacio, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Finally today, we remember Algerian singer Lili Bonish. His name may not be familiar to you. Perhaps you heard our remembrance of him when he died in 2008. Well, a new posthumous collection of songs by Lili Bonish is just out, and it's made music reviewer Beto Arcos very happy. Lili Bonish was born in uh, 1921 to a Sephardic Jewish family. In his early teens, he hooked up with one of the most important singers of the time, uh, the great Saud Loranez, who was a master of uh, Arab Andalusian uh, music. This is where he learned a song such as this one called Ami Legaram. <laughs> Not only did he make his musical debut, but he was also offered to host his own radio show. I mean, can you imagine at the age of 15 <laughs> in Algiers and Radio Algiers? But he was singing all these classical oriented tunes from the classical Arab Andalusian tradition. But pretty soon, because of the changes in musical styles and popularity, he changed and transformed himself into kind of a cabaret singer. And he started singing tunes that were infused with a jazz, with a flamenco, with a even Afro-Cuban flavor, even tangos. Here he is singing a classic bolero from Latin America called Historia de un Amor, but in Arabic he sings it as Ana Filhub. Ana That's Lili Bonish singing Ana Filhub, his own adaptation of a classic bolero from Latin America. I love this collection of songs of Lili Bonish. He is really one of my favorite singers, and I like it because he is able to have this incredible dexterity and creativity in bringing together so many different musical styles to create his own voice. Just fantastic singer, Lili Bonish. <laughs> Reviewer Beto Arcos there telling us about a new collection of songs by the late great singer from Algeria, Lili Bonish. We've got a great video of a performance by Bonish at theworld.org. 
From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Glad you could join us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International